0: Everybody wants to play a bigger part. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody's wondering what we are at heart. This is day one. This
1: is day one. Everybody wants to play a bigger part. Why are you waiting for tomorrow to start? This is day one. Welcome once again to the Day One Leadership Podcast. My guest today is the co-founder and director of Gen Y Inc., which focuses on helping organizations develop cultures that promote positive intergenerational dynamics and get the most out of their talent. He was selected as a member of the Canadian delegation to the G20 Summit. He now sits on the leadership committee of the G20 Young Entrepreneurs Alliance he was named Calgary, Alberta, Canada's youngest game changer by Branded Magazine. And for those who don't live in Canada, Calgary is kind of an important economic hub in Canada. And he is one of American Express's 100 emerging innovators under 35. I want to welcome to the podcast, Eric Termonde. Eric, how you doing, my friend?
0: Drew, thank you very much. Doing very well. Thank you. How about yourself?
1: I'm awesome, my man. Thanks so much for joining us today.
0: I really appreciate it. Looking forward to the chat.
1: Let's pause for a second. Did I just pronounce your name right, man?
0: Yeah, 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 definitely.
1: Awesome. All right, Eric, day one for your company isn't that long ago. You're a young guy. So when you look back at, on day one, what problem were you trying to solve with Gen Y Inc? Like, why does your company need to exist?
0: We found that uh, the tenure with this next generation of of work is shorter than it's ever been before. We see that people are job hopping. We see that there's a communication gap in the workplace. And we see that generations are being generalized and stereotyped for their worst qualities. And we found that, you know, work is something we do more than anything else in a day. If we can really enjoy the experience at work and if we can make life better at work, then we can make life better. And so what we tried to do is build a tool and ultimately an organization that looks to quantify culture and really leverage and articulate the values and experiences of people within their job so we can tell a better story, build trust, manage expectations, and bring on the right people into that job for the right reasons and ultimately keep them happier at work.
1: So how did you go about quantifying culture?
0: Yeah, I mean, we took culture, which is a very cloudy, ambiguous word that everyone tries to understand and look to customize it uh, to understand, again, what was culture on an individual organizational basis? We think that you see lists that talk about the top 100 way, uh, workplaces uh, or the top 100 places to work or the top 100 uh, cultures. And we found that there's a lot of comparative analysis when it comes to culture. You know, you look at the Google and the Facebook cultures as if they're the holy grail of workplace cultures. And that may be true for those organizations, but you look at a law firm or you look at a communications company or you look at a mining company or some oil and gas company, and the Google culture may not be the best fit for the people in these organizations, in these industries, in these sectors. And so what we did is we we developed an analysis and a way to break culture into different themes and ask people within these organizations what they determined to be present, quantify that a little bit, and really create a profile as to what an optimized culture looks like, not a best culture. Because if we can optimize culture, then we can bring on people who want that, that experience, who share those values, and ultimately can enjoy their time at work.
1: So what's an ideal culture is going to be different for each company is what you're saying.
0: Very much so. And I think that that's really interesting because if you look at Fortune's top 100 workplaces or places to work in, in the United States, as of last month, number one was Google, and number four was Wegmans. And, and in Canada, we don't have that. It's essentially a grocery, uh, grocery chain. Now, to have both of these companies on the top 100 list is is fantastic, of course, and it's really stated that these organizations have done very well for their employees and they've got great places to work, but when you look to articulate that, And when you see that, according to Deloitte, 92% of millennials look at cultural fit as the number one priority for places to work, the understanding what that really looks like, what makes them one of those top 100 places to work is very rarely being articulated effectively. And if we're in there to catalyze that story development and really state what it is that people enjoy about their jobs, then perhaps we can put some context as to why these companies are top 100 and why it might be a good place for an individual who's seeking work to be at that place.
1: Because you taught, you said ninety-two percent of millennials look at cultural fit when they determine whether or not to work somewhere. Correct?
0: Well, they desire cultural fit, but I think the disconnect is that cultural fit isn't properly being being properly articulated from organizations so that people know exactly what it is that means.
1: Okay, so let's talk about the word culture. Okay, because mm-hmm. what does that mean? Because like, it's I think we often will just just r- jump right to assuming that. We know that. So sure. we say we're trying to, because sure. to, I talk about creating cultures of leadership and you're talking about mm-hmm. culture. Let's just stop for a second before we go any further. Sure. What the hell does that word mean?
0: Yeah, culture is everything within an organization. It's the way we talk about our jobs. It's our, it's our morale and productivity within it. It's the environment that's created. It's how people interact with that environment. It is... Um, Everything that a company eats, sleeps and breathes, it's the mission statements on the walls, it's the vision of the organization, the values of the people within it. And I think the difference between a good culture and a bad culture is that in a good culture, the interaction between the environment and the people is positive and that there are the tools required for people to do their best work because they want to do their best work, not because they feel like they have to. And in a toxic culture, there's disconnect, there's lack of communication, there's lack of understanding about how environment and people interact, and that ecosystem is broken to a point that people can't do the best work, nor do they want to do the best work, which causes that turmoil within the workplace and ultimately poor retention, inefficient attraction, and uh, operations that simply don't make sense or don't really drive bottom line.
1: Well, because I've always thought culture is culture is. And it's weird because when you say it's everything, right? The problem is, if something is everything, is it can it be anything? You know, when you say it's the same way when you say, well, if if your audience is everyone, then you actually don't have a specific audience. So, it, it seems a little hard sometimes when you say, okay, well, we want to create a, a positive culture. When you realize that that means absolutely everything, I've often seen culture as mm-hmm. the, the culture is the set of expectations that drive behavior when you do, without even thinking about it. So we start to recognize that any time that you spend any time anywhere, what you Mm -hmm. start to realize is that there is expectations for behavior. And those expectations cause you to behave in certain ways without you even realizing it. Because you recognize that failing to do so will bring almost universal and very swift consequences. So for me, it's it's always been when people say, oh, I want a, a good cultural fit. Or millennials say they want a good cultural fit. Do you think that people actually understand what that means or are people saying I want this in a company but they haven't yet Mm -hmm. defined it and as such how do you know when it's there?
0: Well you you talk about creating culture which is I think an interesting concept because I don't really believe you can create culture. Mm -hmm. I think it's there whether you like it or not. It is the way that people will interact with the environment whether that's positive or negative I think it's still there. And so I think the the buzzword that I would highlight is the alignment of culture. And then when you talk about expectations, the expectations are going to be there too. Uh, And I think that in a traditional job description, you look at uh, the, the, the description of the skills and the requirements, not the expectations, the values and experience. And because we don't understand what the value and experiences and expectations are going into the job, that that's often where the disconnect is because there isn't that alignment. So the culture is created, but perhaps not um, you know, in synergy between the organization and the people within it. And I think that's where the biggest opportunity is, because if we can properly leverage what an organization's values, experiences, and expectations are... Then we're not creating culture we're aligning it with the people who share those same values the same desire experiences and understand the expectations based on what culture is aligned and how that story is told
1: and so for you i know that you think this starts a lot with how people go out and seek uh and seek new people to become part of a culture like I, i've heard you talk mm-hmm. about there are fundamental problems with the way that people promote jobs so tell me, talk to me a mm-hmm. little bit about what you think is wrong with the average job description.
0: Well, I think the average job description is, is a skills description. It's a requirements description. It's an education requirement, you know. And so we look at, um, okay, here's what you need to do. Here's the experience that you need to have. And here's the education required to do the job. But, you know, in a world that's so technologically integrated and dependent, we see the monsters, the job boards, the posting sites, the recruiting agencies, and ultimately so much noise that says the same thing without differentiating what that experience is going to be. That I often think that it's not so much about what we do, more how, why, and who we do it with. And I think when we talk about the how, why, and who we do it with, We get into that true cultural identity. We get into the expectations. We get into the experiences, and we understand who it is we're going to be working with, how that job is going to be done, and what it really means, emotions we can feel from it. And I often use the example of an accountant because the what that you would do, regardless of, of where, of why, how, or who with, is generally the same. Now, you can be an accountant at a golf course or in government or in one of the big four or in a coffee shop or in, you know, anywhere in between. And the how, the why, the who you do it with very much differs. And you wouldn't see in any of these job postings, regardless of where the posting is coming from, the differentiation of what that experience really looks like. And I think that's where the big disconnect is in a world that's so noisy and so full of choice. We look for fit, but we can't find it being articulated from an organizational perspective
1: so it's interesting what you're saying is that companies are going to be better served when they go out and seek new people as instead of saying this is what we want you to be able to do you're, mm-hmm. by saying here's what here's how our company does work, here's why we're doing it, and here are the type of people you're mm-hmm. going to do it with, and that's what we're seeking sure. so Is the reason people, why don't people do that? Like what has been standing in the way of doing that? Why is every job description still this, here's the degree you need, and here's the list of skills? And are you worried that if you change it, people aren't going to attract the people with the right skills? I guess I just asked you a couple of different questions. Well,
0: yeah, I'll I'll address the the latter question actually first. I'm I'm not trying to downplay skills or requirements either, but I also think there has to be a non-starter that talks about that experience and values component first. Now, I think I will say, too, that the reason why it's not being done to the degree that it should is that we're living in this, I'll say, honeymoon phase of technological integration, where there's been such an explosion of information that it just hasn't adjusted yet. If we look at 20 years ago, I know one of my mentors said that the job posting that she got uh, was on the back of a recipe card on a bulletin board at the end of the hallway in her university There were probably 40 people that saw that job posting, of which 15 applied, of which five got an interview, uh, and, and of which she was fortunate enough to get a job. Now, because this explosion of information, we're seeing organizations automate the recruiting process, and so you have the ability to blanket apply to 40, 50, 60, 70 jobs at the same time almost, or even within the same day, and we're not looking for... Uh, what that right experience or fit is yet just because there's been so much misinformation or a lack of information as to what the experience is. Now, to your question around why that's the case, it does take longer. It does take a complete understanding of your organization, and it's a bit, I would say, risky in that there has to be complete transparency as well. But at the same time, too, if we understand the values of the people within our organization and are proud of the work that we do and are proud of the people within it, that transparency and the risk that's associated with it is completely gone because I still think people are aspiring to be the Googles and have the Google culture. But the Google culture isn't the right fit for all people. And instead of trying to attract generations, instead of trying to attract massive groups of people, I think instead we have to adjust and tweak the focus to attract the right people, which is going to be a very small cohort, but it'll save time, money, and increase productivity, morale and happiness in the workplace if we do it right.
1: So one of the things I found really interesting when I listened to you speak, and let's give a little background here, um, Eric reached out to me and, uh, and said, hey, I saw you speak a few years ago and, and uh, I'd love you to come and see what I'm talking about now. So I went out and, and checked out Eric's speech and he talked about quite a few things that I started to tweet about. I wanted to just sort of dive into a couple more of them here. You you off the top said we're generations are being stereotyped by their worst characteristics. Give me some examples of what you mean by that. So uh,
0: no, that's a great question. I think that if you look at millennials, for example, which you know as an aside, I'll say is a bit of a false construct. In that, I don't think the idea of a millennial exists in this very technologically integrated world. That's a bit of an aside. But when we're to look at these millennials. You know, people will say that they're narcissistic, job hopping, not loyal generation that lives in their parents' basement, watches Netflix all day, and ultimately can't work. You know, and it's very difficult to communicate with people when these generalizations or these stereotypes are the things that we use to describe seven and a half million Canadians or 21% of the population. And so if we've got these preconceived judgments or our, our understandings or assumptions of people, it's very difficult to break down that barrier without knowing someone uh, and giving them an, an equal shot right off the bat. Because I know that it's really contradictory. Now, I was reading the newspaper that said that millennials are the generation that won't quit working because the technology, technology is so integrated into their lives that they work at home and at night and during the day and take breaks, you know, again, this is not a generational conversation. This is an evolution of work conversation. It just so happens to be in my opinion that this millennial generation is caught in the crosshairs of this evolution of work. And we think that it's these people that are doing things different, that have a whole different set of values, that have a whole, have a whole different set of desires. And I think that that's partially true. But I think that any generation that would have gone through the same technological explosion that this generation is would have the exact same uh, value sets or desires as this generation did.
1: Now, it's when the technology starts to impact you, though, wouldn't it? Because technically, I went through the same, I went through the exact same technological evolution or, or explosion that you did, you mm-hmm. know, and we're, we're 20 mm-hmm. years apart, give or take. So, how come. Mm-hmm. Did it affect me as well? But I just don't get hit with the same stereotype because, you know, if you say what you said, let me, let me,
0: let me, let me me, me ask you that then, you know, do you work a strict nine to five? Do you leave work at work? Do you take it home with you? Uh, Do you desire the ability to work flexibly when you can, to have a little bit of remote work when you can? I mean, uh, is it as traditional as it was 20 years ago? I guess I can pose the question on you then.
1: Yeah, of course I seek all that. As a matter of fact, I sought that so badly that I started my own company so that I could do it. So I guess right. that's the question, right? Is that we say that millennials d- do all of these things, but I guess we all do. It's just they grew right. up with it, right? So is it that they're well, better at it or more bit. obsessed it's, with it?
0: It's, this, it's the speed of uh, you know adapting to this technological integration, you know, and it's easier to adapt or adopt something. Uh, when it's the first time you've ever used it as opposed to reinventing the wheel or relearning a way of doing things. I mean, even when it comes to uh, you know, iPhones and apps or Androids or whatever that might be, uh, relearning how to communicate, whether it be via text or then via group chats or WhatsApp and then Slack. You know, for someone who's coming into the workplace for the first time and is being taught WhatsApp and Slack and these group messaging uh, tools, it, it's, it's obviously easier. Now, is it easy to relearn these things or, or learn new uh, tools and tricks? I mean, obviously uh, they're they're still being adopted, but perhaps not at the same rate, uh, just because you know, why fix something that's not broken? Yeah, I got uh, I got for, something for that an older works. Generation?
1: I got I got yeah. something that works. Why shouldn't I use email? Uh, wherein well, if- and change is
0: change is scary, right? People
1: love the idea of change, but people
0: don't like to change. (laughs) People don't like to break habits, break routine, and and that's fine. Uh, It just makes the adoption of new technology a little bit more difficult and perhaps a little slower. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that for a generation, the adoption of new technology is slower because there are going to be people who are in that millennial cohort or that Gen X cohort that, you know, simply – prefer traditional methods of communication, and that's fine. But again, that further my point in saying that we can't generalize generations. It's, it's simply not fair. I think what we can do instead of categorizing people based on the year that they were born is talk about the values that they've got or the experiences they desire, or the communication style that makes the most sense. And if we can understand that and group people uh, in, these different, in the different way of doing things, then I think we can close the communication, age, uh, and talent gap in the workplace because we bring people together that want to be together for the reasons that make the most sense for them.
1: So, and you said this, I heard as well. I tweeted this out: Don't treat people as their, don't treat people as a cohort, or treat them as an individual. So recognize mm-hmm. that what what workplaces need to worry less about is, okay, how do we integrate our generations, and more about how do we learn more about what our individuals like what right. they care about, how like how they want to do things, why they want to do things, who they want to do them with. Let's focus yeah. more on that as opposed to yeah. whether or not we've got our millennials working with our Gen Ys, working with our Gen Xs, and instead say, okay, right. we've got these individuals, right. and we're not asking them the right questions. We're generalizing.
0: Right. And now let me ask you, too, how many times you have seen an article that said, you know, five things millennials like to do or five ways to engage millennials or five ways to attract and retain millennials or any of these sort of lists, generalization articles which i think completely miss the mark because yeah i mean they're going to be true because these 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 tips or these suggestions will apply to millennials but not just millennials or not all millennials so i think these articles could be five tips to better recruit people into the workplace because again these tips and this advice is generally to do with technology or the future of work and is not generation specific Uh, and really should be viewed as such. I think then if we can have five tips on recruiting people in this new age of work, that can be far more useful than trying to generalize a generation that probably doesn't have a lot of characteristics that are being described in the article anyways. Well,
1: what are your five tips for recruiting people at work? Well,
0: my five tips off the top of my head, uh, tip number one is understand, uh, your employee base first. (laughs) Who's in there? What do they enjoy? What does the environment look like? How does that culture? How can that culture really be articulated? Number two is then based on the tweet that you tweeted is hire for an individual and not for a cohort. Bring in a, a certain person with a specific value and experience that that is a right fit for the organization. Number three is hire slow and fire fast. So you know, make sure that you bring in. That, that individual for a series of interviews with a series of questions. I would even recommend take home homework to understand that they're really into this job for the right reasons, uh, and it's not just for you know monetary compensation or because the job posting looks sexy online. Number four is I would even suggest providing the interviewee with a set of questions that they should ask the organization, so they can have a better sense of what that experience is going to look like. Because I think. Still because this conversation is so new and so early that the individual who's looking for the job doesn't really know the questions to ask you know what in terms of you know how many overtime days did someone in my position work last year how many holidays did they get what does what does this job enable me to do outside of work do the people within this job uh go to classes together or do they go to you know beer nights on thursdays or something like that you know what. Does this job enable me to experience outside of outside of work as well as in, which I think is really important? And the fifth is, off the top of my head, have the individual interview with someone who's already in that position. I think is an is an interesting one because if you can have complete transparency from someone who's in that position and someone who will be working with the potential individual who's being um, recruited. Then, I can, then again, I think that being proactive to culture and understanding fit uh, early is going to be a huge cost saver, as opposed to being reactive to culture and realizing there wasn't the right person brought on based on fit.
1: And this is there. You
0: have it. Five tips.
1: <laughs> I like it. And, and this is this is for everyone. And let's be very clear: we are not talking about here's tips for hiring millennials, or here's tips for hiring Gen. gen you, you were saying this is how to hire good people and let's focus on that. Right. Now, let's talk a second. You said hire for the individual, not for the cohort. I find one of your thoughts on cohorts to be really interesting. Like not only do we say, okay, these are millennials, these are Gen Y, these are Gen X, and then we, as you say, attribute all of these stereotypes to the entire cohort. So we say everyone in this cohort is the same in some ways, but then we look at Mm -hmm. cohorts and we say, all these cohorts are the same. And I thought you had a really fascinating point that, no, they're not. Like we have traditionally thought of a cohort as, okay, this block of 15 years, anyone born in this block of 15 years is a cohort. So these are millennials and these are Gen Z and before that came, you know, Gen Gen X. But you have a different way of looking at that and say it's dangerous to even look at cohorts (laughs) like they're all created equal. Tell us a little bit about Mm -hmm. that because I found it fascinating.
0: Yeah, we're going to get a little complicated here, so I'm going to try and and go slow, but In the past, let's just call it the Facebook era, 2007 to now-ish, we're seeing the ability to, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, so on and so forth. Just basically information uh, that the public sees uh, is becoming so widely transferable. I mean, Cisco even will say that we're entering the zettabyte era this year, which means there are a million, or sorry, a thousand, 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 megabytes worth of data that's being transmitted online this year alone, which to put into context is about 250 billion DVDs. (laughs) Now, this integration of information, this awareness of information, this integration of technology is happening so much faster than ever before that the language that we speak and the technology that we grow up with is changing so fast that the idea of the cohort being this fixed time period. So, okay, this millennial, this Gen X, this boomer being a fixed time period, I think is incorrect. And so as this integration of technology becomes exponentially steeper, my theory is that the time span a generation occupies with respect or relation to technology has to shrink. OK, so if you've got a cohort of people 100 years ago, that was 15 years wide. Let's call them whatever was before traditionalists. You look at between, I would say, 1905 and 1920, that 15 years span. Because technology didn't change very much and because the practices of raising people and the information that we were subject to didn't change much, the conversations that people could have, I would say, were more normalized. Now, if you look at people today, the world that we grow up in, whether you're in the back of a car and you're either reading a book or playing some sort of game device or now you're on an iPad with a 3G or 4G LTE wireless signal. Is changing the way that we're raised, it's changing the way that we communicate, it's changing the way we access information, it's changing the skills that we've got and the skills that we require, it's changing how jobs are done and which ones are automated and which ones aren't, and that's continually changing faster and faster. So the time span that this generation occupies, or this cohort occupies with respect to technology has to shrink. And it has to shrink at the same exponential rate that technology is being integrated, which I think is then suggesting that the idea of a generation with respect to millennials, Gen X, boomers and so on is a false construct because the world that we're changing in and the language these generations speak is so vastly different than it was 100 years ago.
1: So the idea is, look, you talk to a boomer, someone who was born Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the baby boomer era versus someone at the end, they basically had a relatively similar experience. But you talked to right. a millennial born in the first year that we've arbitrarily decided we're millennials versus one arbitrarily in the
0: last. Decided, I think that's a good point. Yeah. yeah
1: we did. Because what is it? I got it. I don't yeah. even know. What is a millennial it's born? Uh, well, let's just clear that up. Well, the
0: joke, in my opinion, is that I use uh, 1990, uh, sorry, 1980 to 1995. Some will say 77 to 93. Some will even say like nine, like 85 to 2000. But again, if we can't even define what this generation, what years they were born, how can we possibly try and categorize, generalize, and stereotype what their characteristics are?
1: Yeah, because in the 15 years between the beginning of the Gen X and the end of the Gen X, let's say the amount of information accessible and that you had to integrate into your life and your world, was it doubled, all right? Or yeah. it tripled. Yeah the difference between mm-hmm. the amount of information that someone born in the first year of what we, whatever we've decided is the millennial generation and the last year it could have increased 10 times over and okay. so what you're saying is that look because information is doubling so much faster than any time before in human history each cohort is actually smaller so when, what we generally call millennials if we really wanted to label them could be four different different groups really and why yeah, and, it's and not what hard, benefit do it's we not get a
0: hard science but yeah it's not a hard science but yeah because again if we're trying to really understand people and attract based on fit we better be talking the right language right and again even if we were to break millennials into four generations into four different segments into four different cohorts even then we couldn't generalize You know, 25% of the current millennial cohort, because that's simply not true. I come from a family of four people, uh, where I've got my my brother and my mom and my dad. And when I was 12, and my brother was nine, we found it very difficult as a family to do a Sunday afternoon activity because we valued different things. We had different interests and different hobbies and different ideas of what was a good time. (laughs) That's a family with the same last name that lives under the same roof. Now, how can we possibly generalize a stereotype? uh you know seven and a half million people if we're using the full millennial cohort or even a quarter of that it's simply it, it's not it's not accurate
1: and, and you're not doing yourself any favors is basically it and i think it's interesting That's you right. talked about the five tips for hiring like this is kind of the same as five tips for picking friends five tips for uh for, for identifying mentors right it's it's, right. you know, take a look inside first. All right. I understand what players your, your employees first. All right. So first take a look at what yeah. exists and then realize that you can't generalize and say, oh, because this person is a part <laughs> of this group that they may yeah. be this or that, you know, and, yeah. you know, take, take time to make sure that somebody becomes a part of your life, but right. cut ties quickly. What's the great phrase I heard? You know, you have to walk away from the table when love is no longer being served. You know, make sure that that individual is taking the it's like it's not you don't provide with questions, but I often said if somebody is in your life, if a friend is in your life and you can't identify the last set of questions they asked you, then you don't have an equal Mm -hmm. relationship. You really don't. eh? I think that's a really important point is that are your friends still asking you questions when you have interactions with anyone? Is it mostly about them or is it mostly about you? So it's interesting. You, you right. gave five tips and it really is about recognizing the individuality uh, and the importance of recognizing that when you want to build any kind of group.
0: Yeah. yeah, when's the last time you said you wanted to be friends with a millennial and that was the only criteria you had?
1: That's a really good point. Like, <laughs> God, i want to be friends with a millennial today. That's what I'm looking for, right?
0: What when are you, you looking for in a friend? Well, I want them to be a millennial. And um, well, I think that's about it.
1: <laughs> and it's weird because we then we, we approach creating our organizations and businesses that way. You you consult right. for you consult on how to create effective. Co- now we all talked about you can create cultures, but you talk about the sure. importance of individual dynamics within workplaces for people. So here's a hypothetical. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. you're a decision sure. maker in a workplace, and you can do only one of the following two things: you can add someone. Oh, yeah, I know that then people I was like no dichotomy questions bother me but yeah <laughs> good you can do only one of the following two things add someone who is a great fit or remove someone who isn't which one do you choose
0: well uh putting me on the spot here I would say that you can't remove or sorry you can't add someone who fits As well, if you've got someone within the organization who doesn't, that seems counterintuitive. So my first reaction would be to get rid of someone who doesn't, because then you can hire someone that does. Uh, And then you'd have a more true alignment when that person were to be brought on.
1: So you can't actually, like somebody in the way keeps you from being able to fit anyone in. So like someone who isn't a good fit actually makes it almost impossible to add someone new who's correct is what you're saying.
0: Well, again, we're not, yeah, because in my opinion, we're not talking about creating culture. We're talking about alignment of culture. And if the person who's in there isn't aligned with the culture, they're going to have to go on eventually and will likely free up some airspace for people who are aligned with the culture and can do more effective work if they aren't there. Let's Then we can bring someone who is aligned and then amplify the productivity uh, and efficiencies from there.
1: It's interesting you talk about alignment um, as a key word. Because we've talked a lot about organizational alignment, but most of my work focuses on personal alignment. And But it, it is mm-hmm. in many ways the same steps that you do, which is first thing you do is you look inside and say, well, okay, well, what is it that we want to stand for? Like, how do I want mm-hmm. to do something? Why do I want to do it? Who do I want to do it with? Mm-hmm. And then you ask yourself, am I actually doing it? And you can't create organizational culture. Can you create a personal culture in your mind?
0: I think you can have a strong definition of desired experiences and, and values that you've got too, um, and aligning what, you know, personal goals are with behaviors that are, that are happening along the way. Right. And I think when it comes to looking for a position that the definition of success right now, in my opinion, is the one with the most education, the best job title, uh, the most accumulated wealth and materials. Now, that's simply not the case. I know a lot of people right now, regardless of what generation they're a part of, are looking for fulfillment and the pursuit of passion and happiness that will ultimately drive a lot of their career choices. Now that's not to suggest that monetary compensation isn't important or should be compromised, but we find that a lot of the things, if we do what makes us happy, uh, the money will follow. You know, I just was watching a Ted talk about a Harvard study that talked about you know a sample size of 2,000 people over 75 years to really identify what the key component or the key driver to happiness was, and they said healthy relationships. Now again, going back, going back into this workplace conversation around the attraction of talent that doesn't at all talk about the relationships or the values and the experiences of the people within the organization it's really hard to identify what those relationships are going to look like. And then it's very difficult to align personal values with the organization or the people within it when we don't understand what those qualities are. And so I think from a personal perspective, the creation of personal culture, I'm not really sure that that's a thing right now. Maybe I need to dive into that a little bit more, but a true definition of what you want to get out of an experience or the emotions that you're really looking for to make you feel happy and where we can, you know, where we can obtain those emotions from is I think really important.
1: So if I was to go back uh, to day one for my life, my career, what you're saying to people is don't ask yourself, what do I want to do or, and what do I want to make? ask yourself, what do I want to feel every day at work? Yeah,
0: that's right. And, and what what life do we want to live and how can we find a job that will enable that life? And within that job, something that makes us feel fulfilled and happy along the way. Because so I think uh, the biggest mistake of job seekers right now, regardless of whether they're coming out of university, high school, or in a mid-career transition, is that we're looking for, you know, what job do you want to do? What do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> Where do you want to work? And I think that these questions traditionally were important because this choice and the awareness of the opportunities wasn't as great as it is today but because that awareness is so great and we've got the ability to understand what these experiences are if we do enough research and ask the right questions that we truly can find a job that fits the lifestyle that we want to live and ultimately makes us feel happy while we're there
1: and so you talk about how we're educating people and I know that you mm-hmm. speak about this. You travel and you speak and talk about education for the new workforce. And so let's take this day one hypothetical I love to, to circle things around and say, okay, sure, and apply it to the education system here. Imagine we could completely tear down the education system and build it mm-hmm. back up again so it's better suited to prepare young people for the world as it exists now. Now, the problem is in five years, this world won't exist. But let's go back mm-hmm. and say, okay, it's day one of Eric's new education system. How would you construct it? And by that I mean, what would you tell educators and what would you tell people going into the education system or coming through the education system? What would you change? How would you make it different?
0: Yeah, we see a huge industry that's exploding right now around personal development and around understanding what it is that we can get out of our lives. Now, when you look at the traditional university system, it's very linear thinking. It's very much around problem solving in sort of like an engineering or business context, I think what we're seeing now is a real rise of the BA as a Bachelor of Arts uh, degrees, where, you know, I was reading a World Economic Forum article and they said nearly two thirds of students that graduate out of the university have the ability to critically think about what decisions are going to be best for them. Now, they have the hard skills, of course, to do it, and they may be a specialist in a certain field, but unless they can identify how to solve problems on a personal basis and really discover what career would be a best fit for them based on the values that they've got. Again, I think we're on this blind chase for society's definition of what success is instead of our internal definition of what makes us happy. And I think there's so much vulnerability about going out on our own path and pursuing our dreams that don't really follow that well-paved road that is causing a lot of anxiety and a lot of turnover in the workplace because success in a traditional sense, I don't think is as accurate as one that's uh, one that we see today. Again, because we're aware of so many other opportunities that are right at our fingertips that perhaps may not have been 15 or 20 years ago. So again, going back to your question around education, uh, I would say, you know, I would like to learn how to identify really what I value most and really where I can go next, because we're not asking students these questions, and students aren't asking themselves these questions, and parents aren't asking the kids these questions. Parents are still asking, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I think the kind of the humor behind that is the chances are they just played a game of life, and they realize they can be an accountant, a teacher, a doctor, a lawyer, an athlete, uh, or, you know, a travel agent or something like that. But when you look at the thousands and thousands and thousands of jobs and experiences out there, that we can't possibly educate a student On the right job that's best fit for them, but if we can educate them on how to identify what the right fit is, then I believe the individual can take that self understanding that knowledge of self and discover what a great fit is for them based on what life they want to live So the ability to critically think on a personal level, I think is hugely important. And the approach that I'm taking with Gen Y and the speaking that I'm doing in the book that I'm writing is that if we can help organizations articulate what those values are, it'll be easier for an individual to find them, and it'll be easier for an individual to ask those questions. And on the flip side, if we can educate individuals on how to ask those questions of organizations, then I think organizations will be better fit to attract the right people to them.
1: So we've got to start teaching people, if we want them to be leaders of their own lives, we have to start teaching them to ask, okay, how do I want to feel every day? And what, what feelings make me happy? And then the workplaces yeah. have to start saying, this is what working here will make you feel, and that's yeah. why it's going to be easier to bring people together.
0: Yeah, and feelings is kind of a, a, a soft word, and it seems like something, <laughs> oh, that that's really is something a millennial would say, wouldn't it? <laughs> but at the same time, Again, this is an evolution of word conversation, and I think that these things have to be considered when the skills required to do the job. You know, we're we're educating generalists mostly because the requirements to get into university mean you have to have community involvement, you know, volunteer activities that are being done. You have to sit on clubs and societies. And when you graduate from university into the real world, we'll say, again, what clubs were you a part of? What societies were you a part of? What sports did you play when you're in university? What work experience did you have? Did you have a part-time job? Again, because people are required to do so much more than just the the 3.5 to 4.0 GPA, we're really kind of educating this generalist. And if the skills are that transferable, you know, again, using an accountant and then the thousands of places that an accountant can work, we better start talking about the experience of the job as opposed to just the skills to do it. If we want to attract the right person into the culture that we've really identified to be aligned.
1: I'd like to, to spin a little bit to a personal experience, if you don't mind in, in in your world, because Mm -hmm. You remember the University of Calgary Students Union back in 2014 when five mm-hmm. students were killed in a multiple homicide in Calgary. And that's the largest in that city's history. You wrote an article for The Globe and Mail following that event uh, about leading in the face of tragedy. Like, do you mind sharing mm-hmm. with the folks listening what you learned about leadership from that experience? Because it seemed to me that you talk about leadership in that article about someone who was a leader in your life. But in in the less corporate sense, in the less title sense, and more in in the interpersonal yeah. sense, tell us a little bit about that experience.
0: Yeah, that was um, that was certainly a, a tough a tough day for sure, a tough series of days. You know, obviously a, a significant tragedy in the city of Calgary, and uh, uh, as vice president of the student union that year, I was to give a major address to uh, a big banquet that we had and. Uh, this was before the details had come out. It was, you know, uh, so many questions, you know, very few answers. And it was my job to address the 200 people at the lunch uh, and, you know, provide my condolences to the families for, for the losses. And that was the first time in a leadership position I had to, I think, truly wear the face of a leader, uh, given the the role that I was in. Now, I uh, had a difficult time with that, there's no doubt, in that I had to be the strong face of the University Students' Union, uh, but still have, you know, and show the soft side, which was the difficulty that I was having, grasping the reality of the, the situation. And like anyone else, regardless of their stage of life or career, I, uh, I reached out to someone who did then and continues to mean a lot to me. And I just, you know, I, I needed, I needed help emotionally. It was really difficult. And so that person led me through a conversation that kind of calmed me a little bit and allowed me to then two minutes later, walk up on the stage and give the address. Uh, so that I could be in the leadership position that I was and lead this group of 200 people into, uh, you know, assuring safety, but at the still, at the same time, trying to grapple with this huge loss in the city. And so I'm, I, I can't speak to, you know, leaders on, uh, in government, whether it be municipal, provincial Uh, Or federal, but I know or I can suggest that in difficult times, whether it's a loved one or a a coach or a mentor or whatever that might be, that leadership in that sense, in times of of real difficulty, uh, leadership takes many different forms. And I think that it comes down to the ability to trust and communicate with people that mean the most to us to really uh, get as much value and address difficult situations to ultimately get through times.
1: And you wrote something that uh, really resonated with me. And, And you said the resilience of a community begins with you. What did you mean by that?
0: I would say that that's similar to voting or similar to recycling as opposed to throwing something in the trash. I mean, the ability to be strong and the ability to make change on a micro or a macro level starts with the individual. We don't see global change unless we see micro change. And I think that when we look at resiliency and we look at strength and we look at the ability to come together and be a community, that leadership in that sense is very relative. And that unless we have each other, unless we can have shoulders to lean on, that I think that, you know, the, that, that resiliency and the ability to, uh, push through tough times ultimately starts with one person.
1: And so in the, even in the face of, of something that seems overwhelming to a lot of people, all we can really focus on is recognizing that we have got to find a way to be resilient. And in doing so, we're taking the first steps to creating that strength of the entire community.
0: I think so, yeah, because then you become a positive role model and you become a support system for someone else, and then you've got that exponential effect from there. It's
1: amazing. Now, I always close by asking a big part of this podcast is to try to get – try to give people listening a question that they could ask themselves every day that uh, would drive behavior that's going to help them out, that's going to empower them. So Mm -hmm. I always ask this. Imagine you went back to, to day one of high school and you got to sit down across from Eric in grade nine, and mm-hmm. uh, and you say, Eric, here's one question I want you to ask every day, and I want you to have an answer for this question by the end of every single day. What question would you give yourself on day one? Did you get closer to making
0: your dreams come true, really? And I think the answer to that has to be yes every day and you know i was talking to a good friend of mine sean frankson he's from plastic bank which is you know an incredible organization in calgary here doing or sorry in vancouver doing incredible things globally uh, but he says that he's got an adaptive ideal <laughs> uh, which is essentially a, a a nice way of saying that he's got an evolving goal that he's always striving towards and that adaptive ideal is the ideal that we've got today. So what I'm trying to do is is respectfully change the way that we talk about work and close the talent communication and age gap in the workplace. Okay, so that's, that's my adaptive ideal. But I know, Drew, that in a conversation with you and the knowledge that you've amassed over the years and your experience that you've got, that the conversation that I can have with you could educate me or tweak something that I know or push me in a direction that I can be better off of because of. Now, that adaptive ideal is an adaptive one because based on what I learned from a conversation with you today might change my ideal in the future, which means it has to be adaptive. And so if I was sitting across from myself in grade nine and I said, you know, are you getting closer to making your dreams or your goal come true? The answer would have to be yes, knowing that that dream and that goal can be flexible, as long as I'm continuing to be a better person each day I wake up.
1: I like it. And I think it's on that note, the idea of the adaptive ideal, which I think is amazing. And I hope a lot of listeners listen and say, I like that. Because I think sometimes our dreams can become a prison as well, because we become so focused on these dreams and we put so much time into them that even when they're no longer the best dream for us, we hold on to it Mm -hmm. because of the sunk cost. And so Mm -hmm. the idea of an adaptive ideal uh, Mm -hmm. is one that I think I'm really going to have to chew on myself. And I really appreciate you taking the time to share it with us.
0: Well, I think, too, that, you know, there's a lot of of, of rhetoric of verbiage or podcasts of information around goal setting. I think goal setting is really interesting because often people strive to be a position and not a person. And as we get older and have new opportunities, acquire new skills, you know, uh, look at things that we didn't know existed in the past, that these goals that we set based on information and knowledge that we acquired yesterday and ignoring what we learned today, paralyzes us a bit in that it assumes that we have to be the person we said we're going to be when we set the goal. And so it doesn't enable that adaptive component, which I think is utmost important.
1: That's such a... The idea that we're committed to the goal that we set yesterday, even if it doesn't fit who we are today, is a really Uh interesting one. And, And it goes back to the tips you gave too. Step one is you have to look inside and say, what exists now and let go of the idea that it has to have anything to do with what, what existed yesterday, right? Because there are going to be things that change in you. And I think as part of a career search too, and as part of an organizational search or search for the right people in an organization, recognizing that you can't keep looking for what you used to need, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, I, I fully agree. Because it's weird, because I, I think I've spent some time in my life looking for stuff that I used to need. And uh, the idea of an adaptive ideal is one that I think might give me and hopefully some listeners a little more flexibility on getting loose from that, those shackles sometimes. Mm -hmm. Although shackles, I'm sorry, that was a really dramatic way of saying it, folks. But I hope you understand what I mean, is that I sometimes think (laughs) think that we limit ourselves in a pretty severe way. But Eric, Eric, my friend, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the day one podcast today uh, for some insight on. On ways that we can rethink what culture means, and how we can rethink how we in, we bring people into the culture of our organizations and into our personal lives, uh, I think that means a lot to me, and I appreciate you taking the time to share it.
0: Great, Drew. Well, thanks again for your time, and you know, uh, just for the for listeners too, Drew was the very first speaker that I saw in, in this in this sense in this space and uh, the material that he gave was incredibly inspiring. But I think, again, when we talk about not necessarily what he said, how he said it, and the emotion that he gave when he was speaking was, was really important and, and, you know, ultimately driving me to a pursue a career uh, of thought leadership and to be sharing a stage or just, sh- you know, share an experience like the one Drew gave to me uh, really drove some next steps in my career so you know big thanks for, for showing your support and coming out to, to see the presentation and you know for having me on the podcast I do appreciate it
1: hey man Eric Termunday this is a this is a name you're going to hear in this space a lot more folks so I'm I'm really proud that he took the t- that we managed to snag him and share some of his ideas with you before the world starts uh, starts snagging him up and keeping him from me uh, so thank you very very much my man it's really been a pleasure chatting with you Take care, Drew. Thanks a lot. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Day One Leadership Podcast. My thanks to Eric Taramundi, our guest this week, and my thanks to all of you for making this podcast a success. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please go ahead and share it through your social media channels. And what we'd really appreciate is if you go to iTunes and give us a five-star review. We could use a few more, and they really do help. Thanks again so much. We'll be back next week with another episode. I'm Drew Dudley. This is Day One. Every day is Day One. See you next week.